Awesome. So um, last week, Annette and her message, she shared about the barrage of lies that come against our souls. Uh, We know that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and our soul reacts to the lies, that we might have anger, shame, bitterness, offense, fear, criticism. It all stirs up. Lies from the enemy stir up something in us. We're also busier than ever. We have demands on our souls, demands on our time, demands on our emotions. Um, You just have to open up any bit of the internet these days, and there is always a call to buy something or do something or be outraged about something. Um, There is a lot pulling on our souls. Thomas Merton, he said, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything, is to succumb to violence. We're engaging in violence against our souls. So earlier this week, I listened twice through an episode of Mark Sayer's podcast, Rebuilders. It's a fantastic podcast if you're a bit of a nerd. Um, He's an Australian, so uh, culturally not too different to us here in New Zealand. Uh, And he's very perceptive around culture and what does that mean for us as the church. And he talked about how we're living in an age of politics, of skepticism and suspicion. So there used to be a politics of hope. Those days are gone. We're now living in this time of skepticism and um, suspicion, and, you know, we're surveilling our leaders, cancel culture, if you don't say what I want to hear, you're out, not just at government level, but this is across all areas of life, and we're feeling it, right, we're tired, we're weary, we're suspicious, it feels like we're becoming known for what we're against more than what we're, than what we're for, so John Mark Comer in his new book, Live No Lies, calls this barrage, he says, it's, uh, sorry, he says, it feels like a war for the soul, have you felt that? Has anyone else felt that? I'm feeling that. Do you feel like there's a constant tug of war? Feeling emotionally or spiritually depleted? Maybe weary in your mind. If you're like me, you might be committed to pursuing God, uh, pursuing his presence, but as soon as you get tired, you find yourself scrolling or chilling out with Netflix. Like We say it's a priority for us to pursue God, um, but when we're tired, when we're weary, it can make that really hard for us to do it. And we get distracted, not only from loving, away from loving Jesus, but away from loving one another. So I want to open up the Bible this morning. Um, we will have the verses on the screen. Uh, so Luke 7, 36 to 50. Um, yeah, this is a great passage, and it hit me in a fresh way this week. So one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from the city heard he was eating there, she bought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. And then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee, who had also invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. I love that. That Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him the story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to another. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, cancelling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more more after that? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he cancelled the larger debt. 
That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the, first, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said amongst themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. So here we have this woman who she's clearly already had an encounter with Jesus. She's shown up because she's already met Jesus. We're not told what happened, but I guess we can assume that Jesus impacted her. She was responding to that. Jesus saw, uh, sorry, Simon saw her as a sinful woman. He didn't see her as she was now. She had already been forgiven. She had been healed. She was being shaped into wholeness. She was worshipping Jesus. And Jesus was undoing the sin and trauma of her life. She didn't belong in this room. There probably weren't many places that she would have belonged. She was exposed in that moment. She was incredibly vulnerable. These men were watching her. They knew her reputation. Some of them might have known her more intimately. And her hair was uncovered. That was an intimate act. Uncovered hair was only to be seen by husbands. This was scandalous. And the washing of the feet was a task that would only be done by the lowest servants in the house, usually a female. Wives would wash the feet of their husbands as an honorable expression of love. I can't imagine that's disgusting. <laughs> I don't know any wives, I don't know, anyway. Um, and of course, you know, we see later on, you know, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. That was an act that the disciples wouldn't have even washed his feet as a rabbi, but he got down, he washed their feet, even the feet of Judas. Like, that is profound, this beautiful picture of washing of feet. And when we look at the book of Luke, we see these positions of posture are often juxtapositioned against one another. In Luke 8, there is a story of a possessed man. Um, and it says, People rushed out to see what happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been freed from the demons. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, fully clothed and perfectly sane, um, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told the others how the demon-possessed man had been healed, and all the people in the region of the Gerasenes begged Jesus to go away, leave them alone, for a great wave of fear swept over them. The townsfolk were in fear. We're not told entirely why. Um, this wasn't a Jewish town, so you know, were they frightened because of the power that Jesus appeared to yield? Uh, or were they worried about the uh, financial economic implications of the fact that Jesus had just sent like 2,000 pigs into the, you know, to their death? Um, we don't know why they were fearful. But the previously possessed man who had been healed and set free, restored to dignity, clothed, he was leaning in at the feet, listening to his teacher. Uh, in the Mary and Martha story, like the most preached Mother's Day sermon ever, um, Martha was distracted and trying to feed the crowd that Jesus had arrived with. And of course, remember, Jesus arrived with like teenagers. So um, I understand having, we used to lead young adults. And like when they came in, it was like locusts. So I, I get where Martha's coming from. She's the big sister in the story. She's trying to feed everyone. Um, but she was distracted and she was frustrated that Mary wasn't fulfilling the role that was expected of her. 
In Luke 10, 39, it says, her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. Um, here at Awaken, we know the story of the prodigal son and the older brother that's been preached here um, in the past. You know, the older son was upset. You know, he'd given his whole life in obedience to the father. He was upset. You know, his sinful brother was so easy to be able to walk in home and be replaced, restored. Um, the prodigal son, however, he was caught up in the embrace of the father. It's about posture. And then in Luke 17, we see a story where Jesus heals 10 lepers. Nine of them disappeared into their restored lives. They're no longer outcasts, but only one returns in gratitude. And it says, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus shouting, praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. These people all came in postures of worship. This previously lost and sinful woman was now found and made whole, and she poured out that love and gratitude upon the feet of Jesus. It was such an intimate act of worship. But as beautiful as this image is, that's, she's not actually our focus for this morning. When I was reading this passage this week, I saw Simon as the protagonist. It wasn't a reading that I had caught before. Simon was a Pharisee. The Pharisees usually get a bad rap. I don't know if you've read scripture, it's like the Pharisees, they're the bad guys. Got that firm in your head, but it's actually a bit more nuanced than that. The term Pharisee may have come from the word parush, which means separated, um, separated from what was unclean and unholy. In the book, The New Testament in Its World, the authors Tom Wright and Michael Bird write of the Pharisees. They were largely concerned with manufacturing the conditions necessary for Israel's eschatological restoration through a strict regime of Torah. Hands up if you have no idea what I just said. I'll put it in English. <laughs> I forget, yeah. I was, I was like, it sounds real cool. And then it's like, wait, there's a whole bunch of words in there that people won't know. Uh, so English, basically, the end game uh, was following the Torah. So the Torah was the first five books of our Bible as we have it. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was the Jewish law. Um, so they, the Pharisees wanted to follow the Torah as closely as possible because when Israel would finally obey the law, the kingdom would come. They were trying to find a way for the law to be livable for all people, calling all people to return to their ancestral traditions. So they weren't a separatist religious group. They were actually a Jewish renewal movement, seeking to draw Israel towards the conditions that would hasten its restoration before God. And of course, they were waiting for their Messiah, their anointed one. You know, God had been quiet for 400 years in your Bible when you get to the end of the Old Testament, and then you get into the New Testament, and there's like this, you know, that couple of pages represents 400 years. They were waiting um, for their Messiah. But they were expecting a military leader like King David. They were expecting someone who would come and deal with the Romans. So Jesus was calling the Pharisees to give up their interpretation of tradition, to give up their search for national purity, and instead take up Israel's proper vocation of being salt and light. God had called Israel to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, but their history became one of falling short and disobedience. So back to Simon. Simon was looking for purity. He sought to be pure. Um, and this act he was watching unfold in front of him looked deeply irreligious, sinful, and scandalous. Um, in one of my commentaries, it uncomfortably called this scene erotic, which was a little bit, I was like, well, that's, anyway, this <laughs> act of worship. So Simon, as a Pharisee, was a gatekeeper for what was pure, what was holy, but when this demonstration of intimacy and holiness was outplayed in front of him, he missed it. 
The very thing he was looking for and he was waiting for was happening right in front of him, and he missed it. And I think we do that. I do that. I miss it. We get focused on what holiness should look like, what morality should look like, what the presence of God should look like, that we miss what God is doing. Um, a few years ago, I was meeting uh, at a meeting with some other churches. We were doing the renovations here, and um, one of the ladies said to me, she said, who chooses your colours? And I was like, what do you mean who chooses the paint colours? Like, I did not understand. And she's like, your committee. And I was like, a committee? I did not know that we needed a committee to choose paint colours. Um, and in our old church as well, where Ian and I were for 14 years, I remember at the end of our time at that church, we ended up with these wars over the heaters and the curtains. It was always too hot. It was always too cold. It was too dark. It was too light. What a distraction. Like, it drove me bonkers. I was like, can we not just get on? with, you know, just sit somewhere else in the auditorium where you won't be, um, for, you know, move away from the heater. Um, we miss what God's doing when we're distracted about these things. And I'm so grateful that this community doesn't get caught up in that small stuff. Um, you know, we don't always get the thermostat right. Apologies. Uh, we're working on that one. <laughs> um, but no one's ever been angry about it. Uh, the band might not nail the last worship song, but what I love to see is that people tend to lean in harder in those moments. You know, the coffee might be a bit cold, uh, but I don't think our CAF team has encountered any entitlement. Um, there's just been grace. Awaken is a community of people who are pursuing the presence of God, a community of people who are having their lives transformed, and in response, with therefore then going out and saturating the Hutt Valley in the love and hope of Jesus. Above our entrance to the auditorium, um, if you've been here a while, you've probably forgotten what it says because you come in every day and who notices it. Um, but it says, come, experience absolute joy in his presence. Um, and that's the heart here. Jesus is already in the room. We don't need to beg him to come. He's already here, but are we paying attention? Um, you know, it's been six weeks since Michael and Ellie left. Um, and we're beginning to figure it out what it is for us to be awakened. Because awakened was never about Michael and Ellie. Like, we are corporately, we are awakened. And I'm so grateful for this community. Personally, what it's such a gift. I'm thankful that I've been able to grieve openly about Michael and Ellie leaving. I'm thankful that when I've had speed wobbles, it's just been met with kindness. Um, I'm thankful for those who have messaged checking in on me, especially the few that tell me off if um, I'm working on my day off. Um, thankful for those who have said, where can I serve? Put me in. Um, so grateful for those who have said that they're, they're committed to being all in and building in this community. Thankful for those who have practiced vulnerability in these last six weeks. Thankful for those who have sought to understand and who have come directly and asked the questions that they've got. I'm thankful for my husband and my boys. They're all in with me. And I'm really thankful that I get to call Awaken Home. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Janelle and I, Janelle is at the end of her internship study. It's been years, I think five years or something we've been doing this journey. And uh, we were reflecting on how it's been four and a half years since we arrived here at Awaken, um, just reflecting what God has done in each of us. We're not the same people we were when we arrived. Like, God has transformed us. And I'm sure that's the same. Like, just listening to the testimonies this morning, that's the truth for so many of us, that um, being in this community has brought transformation. So when Jesus is in the room... Jesus is in the room, lives are being transformed. So when he's in the room, what's my posture? Not only towards Jesus, but towards others who are in the room. If Jesus is always in the room, he's always in each of us. Um, I've got a prayer on my wall in my office that I try to remember when I meet with people. I forget more than I remember, but um, 
I usually remember if I'm going into a particularly difficult catch-up. Um, says, loving God who fills the universe, this entire room, myself and everyone in it, please help me to notice what you are doing in me and in the other person and join that good work. Amen. Now, we're all created in the image of God and we have inherent worth. That should never, ever be up for negotiation. You have worth that is not up for negotiation. Your belonging uh, is not conditional. You know, to love one another is to love Jesus. Um, In the uh, Passion Translation, when I read this passage from Luke, um, it had this little note, and it said, Religion focuses on the sinfulness of a person, but faith sees the glory of the one who forgives and heals. So when we're looking at one another, are we looking at what Jesus has done in that person? Are we looking, are we seeing Jesus in one another? Because we've got to love God's kids, right? Man. And as Annette shared last week, when we see ugliness rising up in ourselves, we can turn back and take shelter in the Father. And she shared this beautiful list of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is in the Passion Translation. Um, it says, joy that overflows, peace that subdues, patience that endures, kindness in action, faith that prevails, um, gentleness of heart and strength of spirit, which is such a beautiful list. And, uh, but, you know, I went back and I was reading the verses before it. Um, and often we read it and we say, oh, you know, like um, oh, addiction, murder, sexual immorality. It's like, oh, yeah, that bit's not really for me. But it also says um, that we won't inherit the kingdom when we're manipulating each other, when we hate those who get in our way, when we carry on with senseless arguments, when we're in love with our own opinions or are envious of others. Oh, yeah, that bit's for me. <laughs> like, we want the good stuff, but we won't inherit the kingdom with that. It's a confronting list. In Romans 8, it says, You have received the spirit of full acceptance, unfolding you into the family of God, and you will never feel orphaned, for as he rises up within us, our spirits join him in saying the words of tender affection, Beloved Father, for the Holy Spirit makes, the God's, uh, makes God's fatherhood real to us as he whispers into our innermost being, You are God's beloved child. And who are we to decide any differently about each other? One of my favorite Henry Nouwen quotes, he says, we are not what we do, we are not what we have, and we are not what others think of us. Coming home is claiming the truth. I am the beloved child of a loving creator. So I am the beloved child of a loving creator. You are the beloved child of a loving creator. He is the beloved child of a loving creator. She is the beloved child of a loving creator. They are the beloved child of a loving creator. Where is Jesus at work at the lives around us? So back to feeling weary and tired, how is your soul? There's only one who can truly restore and replenish our souls. Um, Todd Weir, when writing about this passage in Luke, he says, Simon saw the gift of God as something earned by being good, and therefore he stood like a gatekeeper to protect and defend a faith for the worthy. The woman knew that she had not lived well, but was loved and accepted by God regardless. So faith led her first to a joyful cleansing tears and second to extravagant hospitality that she wished to share. You know, when was the last time you sat at the feet of Jesus and listened? Returned to his feet to express gratitude. Covered his feet in your tears, pouring out sacrifice all over his feet. There's no name higher than Jesus. But he's not always going to come in a way that we expect. 
Um, Elijah discovered that in, in the book of Kings, you know, God wasn't in the wind, he wasn't in the fire, he wasn't in the earthquake, he was in the whisper. Um, and I asked Ian the other night when we were talking about my message, and I was like, um, honey, because, you know, he remembers stuff more than I do. My brain is too busy, and it ditches the information it deems not important, which is really frustrating, because then later I'll be like, what was that information that I needed? It's in the trash pile, and the trash bin's been emptied. But I said to Ian, I said, where has God shown up when I've been looking for something else, and he's coming in a way that, you know, I didn't expect, and it exceeded our expectations? And his reply was just every single time, um, which is so true, right? Like, often we're waiting for God to show up. Um, we sing all your... Um, Promises are yes and amen, but we've got, like, sometimes we get a bit of a picture in our head what we're expecting, and it comes in a different way every time. Um, Band, you guys can probably think about coming back pretty soon. Um, So whilst I was pondering how to wrap up this message, um, and and I didn't have a tidy ending, I was like, man, it'd be really good to have, like, three action points, you know, like, make this a real sermon. Um, and, and how do we become more aware about Jesus? And I realized that actually today we're about to engage in the three action points. Communion. We'll be sharing in communion shortly. Um, we have taken practical steps to make sure that everyone is safe as we participate. Um, but you are welcome to decline it as um, Annette and David move around with communion. So since the beginning of the Christian faith, fellow apprentices of Jesus have been gathering around, a table, around the table on Thanksgiving. It helps us to keep the main thing the main thing. We don't take communion. It can only be received. Um, Ian Morgan Crom puts it this way. Taking is what happened in the Garden of Eden, but opening our hands to receive will put the world back together again. Um, Tom Wright in a lecture on... um, in a lecture states that communion is the sign and seal of his presence in our midst. And if we avoid it or downgrade it or marginalise it, we're actually scorning our risen Lord himself. After all, we need his transforming life to be our life to transform us for his mission in the world. We'll be also celebrating baptisms today. God is moving in this faith community that we call Awaken. Tom Wright, in that same lecture, spoke of baptism. He said, one way of appropriating the meaning of baptism is to go back through the scripture narrative, which Annette kind of did this morning, talking about the flood. Was was that in prayer? Where was that this morning? Yeah, in prayer this morning, Annette was... um, the flood, washing everything away, finding yourself on a mountain. Um, But the Jews, ancient and modern, tell the Passover story each year with graphic detail, with great celebration. It is about coming through the water to freedom. They know perfectly well that the water also looks back to creation in Genesis 1, when the primal waters were parted as God brings creation into being. Through the waters to life, to new life, that's what we're saying in baptism. And he goes on to say, Baptism is the ground on which we stand linked to Jesus, his dying and rising, and the power of his victory are ours because we are his. So this morning, the way we're going to participate in that is to stand alongside those who are being baptized today. And this morning we'll be worshipping, and obviously we're doing that through singing. Um, Warren Wesby, he reminds us that worship is the believer's response, that all that they are, mind, emotions, will, and body, to what God is and says and does. And we all know Matt Redman's lyrics. If you've been around church for any time, you know, uh, I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. It's all about you. It's all about you. And Jeremy Riddle, in his book, The Reset, he says, wherever God is worshipped in spirit and truth, his kingdom is established, his freedom reigns, and the works of the devil are destroyed. Pure praise has always been a weapon of mass destruction of the kingdom of darkness. 
So finally this morning, if you're not aware of God's presence, he is here. Um, I love it when Annette talks about peace. God's presence feels like peace. Um, but Psalm 139 reassures us, where could I go from your spirit? Where could I run and hide from your face? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the realm of the dead, you're there too. If I fly with wings into the, uh, sorry, into the shining dawn, you're there. If I fly into the radiant sunset, you're there waiting. Wherever I go, your hand will guide me, your strength will empower me. It's impossible to disappear from you or to ask the darkness to hide me, for your presence is everywhere, bringing light into my night. I'll just leave you with this final thought from David Fitch in his book, Faithful Presence, in response to the question, how does God change the world? The Bible's answer to this question is the church. God's plan is to become present to the world in and through a people and then invite the world to join with him. How does this happen? In the simplest terms, a group of people gather and become present to God. In our life together, we recognize God and the presence of Jesus through disciplines in which he has promised, I am in your midst. By knowing God's presence in Christ in this way, we're able to recognize his presence in the world. We participate in this work in the world and his presence becomes visible. The world then sees God's presence among us and through us and they join with God and the world is changed. This I contend is faithful presence. This is the church and this is how God has chosen to change the world. Um, so this morning as we move into a time of communion, I just invite you to maybe pause, take some deep breaths, be aware of Jesus in the room. Ask him, what are you doing in this place? And ask him, what are you inviting me into today? Father God, we just thank you that um, you are here, um, that we never need to strive or, perf to, um, or perform uh, to try and get your attention, that you are already here. And I pray that as we come into a time of communion, that, um, Jesus, that we could come face to face with you um, and you would share with us your heart for us, your heart for others in this room, and just pray that we would um, worship this morning. Amen.